Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. This is a conversation podcast about the ideas, events, and phenomena that shape our lives. On this, our second episode, I ask, can we manage the climate crisis? My guest today is Catherine Abreu, the Executive Director of Climate Action Network Canada. Climate change threatens every state on the planet and billions of people. The climate crisis, which is already underway, not only delivers extreme weather events, droughts, floods, fires, pestilence, and other unwelcome phenomena, it also risks undermining the institutional capacity and the international solidarity required to tackle it. If we can't address the crisis quickly and adequately, we may soon find that we've lost the ability to manage it altogether. Such a cycle of devastation and collapse may prove decisive, reversing a historical trajectory that has tracked upwards, albeit with serious inequities and deviations, for centuries. And yet, if we are to survive the climate crisis, we may have to be at once panicked enough to act and hopeful enough to believe that our actions and sacrifices will be meaningful. Catherine, let's start with that question. Can we be both panicked and hopeful about the climate crisis? This is an interesting one. So I'm assuming it references this now famous quote from 16-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg when she said, I don't want your hope. I want you to panic. Our house is on fire. I want you to act like our house is on fire. That was, I think, a powerful rallying cry uh, to push us past this somewhat um, comforting but also somewhat unmotivating narrative about hope and climate change that we'd gotten stuck in. I think panic is important, um, but when we ask ourselves what hope is about, I think often hope is offered as an alternative to despair. And I am a much bigger fan of Joan Bias's assertion that the antidote to despair is action. So I would say I think hope and panic both have a really important role to play when it comes to the climate crisis. But really what I want is action. Mm. I want people to be engaged. I don't want people to be either panicked or hopeful. I want people to understand that this crisis requires them to do something and to be taking that challenge on actively, individually, within their homes, within their families. And this perhaps is the most important piece within their communities. So what do you, what do you think when you look at, you see a news story that says, we have 12 years, I'm thinking of the IPCC report last year and the, and the coverage that came from it, we have 12 years to avoid devastation. That's the frame of, of panic. Or on the other hand, planting trillions of trees will will help mitigate climate and may reverse draw carbon back from the atmosphere. I mean, and that's the hopeful frame that that science or technology or or there's a silver bullet that will save us. I mean, mm-hmm. so there there are different frames, and I've seen some academic literature that suggests that the hopeful frame is more productive because if you think that you're doomed, then you're probably not motivated to do very much. So, w- w- what crosses your mind when you come across? What either the panic frame or the hopeful frame in the media? It's really most challenging when anything gets boiled down to the high-level, unnuanced messaging that we get from media. And this is the case across the board on any issue, and yeah. it's just as much the case on climate change. We need the panic frame in order to 
communicate the urgency of the situation. I was the head of international civil society at the IPCC meeting that landed that report you spoke about in October last year. And I was actually not really expecting the response Mm. that that report got. I was expecting that, you know, I would be heading up this delegation of civil society working really hard to land this groundbreaking report. We would get a couple of media hits off of it, but mostly we would just have some amazing science to make use of in the years moving forward. And instead, that report kind of changed the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it changed the world because it helped folks wrap their heads around the urgency of the situation and the kind of box that we have to work within if we're going to do something about it. And it gave us a sense of the pace of change. So what does half a degree mean? What does 0.1 degree mean in terms of global warming and the impacts that it has as we kind of move forward on this trajectory? I lived in British Columbia for seven or eight years, and in this, there were wildfires every year. Mm. The summer of 2018, something was different. You'd wake up in the morning, you'd taste the smoke, and the sky would be orange, and it would be counterintuitively cold because the sun was blocked out. Mm. But the difference was people were saying this is climate change. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. Mm. And it strikes me that we might be reaching a, a salience tipping point where people are looking around and they're saying okay, yeah, this is a problem, and I feel it. Mm -hmm. It's not some abstract problem of a polar bear floating on an iceberg. It is my insurance rates are going up, my city is burning, I can't breathe the air. I mean, do you think we've reached a a tipping point? Absolutely. I think we've reached a tipping point, particularly in countries like Canada that have, in many parts of the country been isolated from some of the more extreme impacts that many other communities around the world or some of the most vulnerable communities right here in Canada have been exposed to for the last decade at least. So we're all feeling it now, you know, we're all feeling it even if we don't necessarily live on on the coast or in the far north or on a small island state. Um, And it's getting personal. Hmm. And I think that that's actually really critical because if we agree with Joan Baez and and my (laughs) personal bias that the antidote to despair is action. I think really for people to be compelled to take action, it has to be personal. And climate change has so far seemed so remote and impersonal. Mm -hmm. And once it's personal, we can make progress. Once it's personal, we can make it political. And it needs to be political for us to take action at the scale that's required. I mean, I agree. The The one thing I find curious, though, is there's research in Canada that says, okay, Canadians believe in climate change. They believe it's a problem. They believe it's going to affect them. They believe we need to do something about it. They don't want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, th- and this is not unique to climate change. This is true of all kinds of things. If you do direct democracy, for instance, as California has done for years, you'll get people saying we want more services and lower taxes. Uh, that's the equivalent. We want to address yeah. climate change. We don't pay more than $30 a month to do it. I mean, how do you how do you manage something like that? So this is maybe when we can get back to our conversation around the usefulness of the hope frame. The hope frame is useful in kind of pulling people back from the edge, the edge of kind of existential uh, throwing up of hands, saying there's nothing we can do anyway. But sometimes when we use the hope frame, it has an unintended consequence of making it 
an individualistic, putting it into an individualistic uh, ideology. And we know from the best climate psychologists out there, those who do a lot of work exploring the ways in which people understand climate change and kind of internalize it, that the moment you move into that individualistic framework is the moment you kind of lose the ability to believe in and take action on the on the problem of climate change and the ways that action needs to be taken on that problem. And, and that is collective, essentially. It's a collective problem that we need to take collective action on. And so the framework that we need to be moving within is one of community rather than one of individual. And I think when we pose questions like that to people, do you individually feel ready to fork out money that you are otherwise trying to feed your family with or pay your mortgage with, the answer is often going to be no. People are already feeling so much vulnerability within the context of an economic system that is often not working for them. And they're not ready to expose themselves and their families to more vulnerability for anything, even if it's an issue they care deeply about. But when we talk about it from a community perspective, when we say, together we must make an investment to protect our communities so that each of us has the ability moving forward to provide for ourselves and our families and our safety, then the frame shifts. Mm. But so far, we don't hear that question being asked. Should we as a community, should we as a society be investing in solving this problem? I'm much more interested in the answer to that question than I am how much you're willing to put on your credit card every month. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think of voting in the same way. I I don't think, I mean, individual votes don't matter. Your individual vote will, will almost certainly never be decisive. No one's individual vote is ever decisive at the level of a municipality or a province or a federation. It's something we do together to create uh, an outcome that we think is useful for the whole. Mm-hmm. And it's something that only makes sense on aggregate. So I, I agree, and it's a structural problem that needs a, a structural solution. Thinking about solutions, we talk about carbon pricing, which gets the most attention. Mm-hmm. Cl- carbon pricing is... Uh, it's a market mechanism. It, it's easy to wrap your head around it, I think, comparatively. Uh, the, there is a consensus emerging around it, uh, at least a, a, a rough consensus. Carbon pricing and then what? Mm. Uh, because it's inadequate on its own. So, so if we're talking about solutions, especially collective structural solutions, a carbon tax and then what? What comes next? Thank you for asking this question. I have spent more time talking about carbon pricing in the last year than I ever imagined I would, even as a climate activist. (laughs) I think that's probably true for a lot of Canadians. Uh, I mean, the tricky thing about carbon pricing is, even though it is in and of itself a very complex policy, it somehow winds up being the least complex of all of the other climate policies. And so it is the easiest to kind of understand and speak about. It's also very visible. And then it gets kind of put out as the stand-in for climate policy writ large, which is quite dangerous because it means if you are doing away with carbon pricing because it's not a mechanism you agree with, then you might be actually thrown out the baby with the bathwater, which is what we definitely have seen in Ontario, for instance, as they moved away from the cap-and-trade system there. They 
got rid of a whole bunch of other great programs that were working and had nothing to do with carbon pricing. Those were subsidized by the cap-and-trade system? Some of them were subsidized by the cap-and-trade system. So we saw the cancellation of 790 renewable energy projects, many of which had some support from that. But there are ways to build renewable energy that do not depend on investments from carbon pricing. Uh, the reason that carbon pricing is a, an essential piece of the puzzle is because it corrects what is currently a market distortion, where the impacts of climate change and other environmental harm, as well as those impacts on human health that result from those environmental harms, are externalized from our economic system. And that's why economists love carbon pricing, because it writes that market distortion that we've been functioning in for the last, you know, however many centuries. That by doing so, by writing that market distortion, it sends a signal across the economy that it's no longer free to dump pollution in our shared atmosphere. It's no longer free to subject people to the negative health impacts of a, a polluted atmosphere or a warming climate. But it's just one piece of the puzzle because it can't do everything alone. Uh, and there are several other policy approaches, I mean, really countless other policy and regulatory approaches that are necessary. Canada's current plan, the Pan-Canadian Framework, proposes over 50 policy hmm. approaches to addressing climate change. Those 50 other policies really get very little attention. But they do really amazing work, or they propose some really amazing work, to drive emissions down in basically every sector of Canada's economy, with one important exception. <laughs> I'll let you guess what that is, and we can maybe talk about it later. Not the fur trade, I'm assuming. Oh, it's not the fur trade, no. Um, These are regulatory mechanisms? Perhaps? Yes, policy approaches, which mainly involve regulatory mechanisms. So we have the accelerated phase-out of coal-fired electricity. Uh, we have regulations to drive down emissions in light-duty and uh, heavy-duty vehicles. We have investments in sustainable transportation and clean technology. Uh, there is a, a real basket of approaches, and, and that's ultimately what we need when it comes to confronting climate change. We kind of need to do everything we can all at once right now. And I would say that Canada has a good plan to get to very low or zero emissions in the building sector, in the transportation sector, in the power sector, in some industrial processes. It's just a matter of implementing those plans as aggressively as we need to to actually make them work. Where we're kind of missing the boat is on driving down emissions in Canada's oil and gas sector. Mm -hmm. And that's, I know, a whole kettle of fish. But the reality is that the oil and gas sector in Canada, and this is the case for many other fossil fuel producing nations, is the fastest growing and largest source of emissions in this country. And so if we're not figuring out how to address carbon pollution in the oil and gas sector, we're going to keep missing our climate targets and we're going to keep uh, kind of sacrificing the momentum and progress of other climate policies like carbon pricing, like coal phase out. Um, to the accelerated emissions in that one sector. Is the market going to catch up with that? I mean, so, you know, Trans Mountain is going to be twinned, possibly. We'll see. It's certainly the government's intention to twin it. There's a belief that there's a business case to be made for that. I mean, they wouldn't have pursued it if not initially. 
I don't know that we can predict the market 30 years out on this. Is there a possibility that the market gets there before governments get there? I mean, we've seen already some folks divesting, for instance, from the industry because they're a little bit concerned. Yeah, we have seen big shifts toward divestment from the industry, and we've also seen many carbon majors pulling out of the oil sands as some of their first moves away from the continued expansion of their fossil fuel assets worldwide. I think something we tend to lose track of, actually, is that there are already assumptions about the future of the market baked into the decisions around energy infrastructure in Canada, right? And it so happens that the assumptions baked into decisions about building a pipeline like Trans Mountain assume that the world's not going to meet its Paris Agreement goals. Right. So by thinking that we're going to hook our economic future onto those kinds of greenhouse gas intensive energy infrastructure projects, we're actually assuming that the rest of the world's going to fail to take climate change seriously. Correct me if I'm wrong. You said that you think that Canada has the best plan of the G7 countries, right? Did I see that somewhere on Twitter, perhaps? That we have a very, or at least a very good, good plan compared to the G7 countries, so but not adequate or something. That was a response to a report that colleagues in France wrote about the track record of G7 countries when it comes to climate change, and many of the resulting media coverage said Canada had the worst plan of the G7. And in fact, that is completely untrue. I won't say we have the best plan of the G7, but we have a good plan when it comes to most sectors of our economy in the pan-Canadian framework. What I did say is that this is the best plan we've ever seen in Canada. Ah, okay. May not be the best in the G7, but certainly it's the best that we've ever seen in Canada. And so when it comes to planning to take action on climate change, this government has done the best of any previous government. Of course, the Mulroney government had some strong environmental leadership. It was instrumental in getting the international climate regime started at the UN, and it made some amazing progress on acid rain and ozone depletion. But really beyond those environmental gains, which were tangentially related to acting on climate change, we haven't seen any government do very well until four years ago, this government brought all of the provinces and territories together and produced the most comprehensive climate plan we have ever seen. That is perhaps saying a lot about the failures of previous governments, uh, not necessarily saying that this government is you know, the be-all and end-all of climate action. They still bought a pipeline and there's still a lot of work to do because there's been so much pushback from industry and provinces on elements of that plan. And we've seen in response to that pushback, a lot of weakening, a lot of delay. But the pieces are there. The foundation has been built. And so now we need to build the next 20 stories. Well, thinking about that, and thinking about externality, you mentioned externalities. Uh, you know, this is the fundamental problem that that my pollution drifting across your border is your problem, and what are you going to do about it? Uh, that is, I mean, the fundamental problem of climate change is that we all contribute to it, and that our actions are going to be meaningful. But we also require everyone else in the world to act too, especially the United States, China, India, Russia, Brazil other large emitters. How do we build international coalitions to successfully tackle climate uh, 
especially when you, with the rise of authoritarian populists around the world, Bolsonaro, Trump, uh, you know, perhaps the Brexiteers, depending on what they do in the United Kingdom. I mean, how do we push back against that? Especially when Canadians will start to say, well, why should we do anything? We're only 2% of emissions. And what's the point? I mean, how do you build an international coalition under those circumstances? That's an important question. I mean, I'll first tackle this Canada is not a big part of the problem myth. So depending on how you calculate it, Canada is responsible for 1.6 to 2% of global emissions. And we're always hearing about that number as if it's tiny. Mm -hmm. What we don't hear is at 1.6 to 2% of global emissions, Canada is in the top 10 of net emitters worldwide. We have been in the top 10 for the last century. We've never left it. This isn't adjusted for population. Nope. This is net. Oh, right. okay. Net yeah. emissions in Canada, top 10 polluter. It also doesn't tell us that at 1.6%, so even at that kind of lower end of the spectrum, we emit more than 82 other countries in the world combined. Does that include Andorra? <laughs> I, <don't. laughs> I can't name them all. No. I can get you that afterward if you need, but... So 1.6% of global emissions is a large amount. What we also don't hear is that when it comes to per capita emissions, Canadians emit more than pretty much anyone anywhere else in the world. So we are a big part of the problem. We're also one of the wealthiest nations in the world, and we are more historically responsible for the problem of climate change than most other nations. It's very clear that we have the responsibility and the resources to act. This whole question around why should we do anything if other people aren't doing anything, let other people do stuff first and then we'll follow along. I am an only child and I know that if I were to expect a sibling of mine to clean up their room and I wasn't willing to clean up mine, they probably wouldn't clean theirs up. I mean, leading by example is necessary. And there are plenty of other nations in the world, many of whom are not rich, are not historically responsible for the problem, that are already taking that leadership. So how can we morally stand by and let some of these small island developing states, some of these industrializing nations that are going to 100% renewable, that are showing up in international climate events and pushing for more ambition, how can we stand by and do nothing while they are out there putting themselves on the line, facing these existential threats. It's just, it's unacceptable from my perspective. But you're right, we can't do it alone. Fortunately, we're not doing it alone. It's important to acknowledge the negative impacts of leaders like Bolsonaro of Trump who are, have very anti-climate agendas and who are showing up to multilateral meetings now on the regular hijacking those meetings with their anti-climate agendas and kind of building this bully club. But they're still a very small minority. And what is fortunate about those states, or those nations, I should say, is that they're federated nations. So very often, even if we have this kind of rhetoric coming from the federal leader, Donald Trump, we still see that many U.S. states are on board and pushing forward with the Paris Agreement goals. I mean, California, for instance, has a lot of leverage, right? If California, I mean, they take climate seriously. If they push it even further, theoretically, they could do as much as 
a large number of nation states could do, right? I mean, California and Canada are roughly the same size in terms of population. Right. So that gives you a sense of the power of a state like California. And they have, is this true that they have significant clout over setting emission standards? Absolutely. So they have a, a lot of jurisdiction, states have a lot of jurisdiction over how they set uh, pollution standards, including over, for instance, how they set standards in vehicles. Yeah. Um, and so we recently heard, for instance, that even though the federal government in the states is pulling back from fuel efficiency standards that Canada has been linked to, California is continuing to move forward with the existing fuel efficiency standards, and Canada is actually teaming up with California to do that mm. rather than following the lead of uh, the United States at the federal level. And that's actually for very practical reasons. We trade with U.S. states. We don't trade with the nation of the United States. So we need to be aligned with those states that are our largest trade partners. Um, this idea of international coalitions, I just kind of want to wrap that up, is a really important one. And I think necessary for us to kind of keep in perspective what the relative value of international coalitions is. So we see in something like the Powering Past Coal Alliance, which is this group that Canada and the UK have brought together to talk about um, the accelerated phase out of coal worldwide as a kind of first step to phasing out fossil fuels. So we got to get rid of coal first and then we'll move on to getting rid of oil and then natural gas. Has been an amazing uh, tool to raise the profile of coal phase out and to kind of whip countries and subnational jurisdictions and even some private sector actors into a conversation about how that happens. It's a really important resource and lessons sharing space. We identify best practices there. But it can't go into countries and enforce what the international coalition thinks each of those countries should be doing. Right. The only people who can enforce that, really, in democratic states, are the people who hold their decision makers in that country to account. And so there needs to be the kind of back and forth. We can't just rely on the multilateral international regime. We must also rely on individuals understanding that climate change is personal, making that personal connection to the political action that's required in order to respond to that issue, and voting leaders who are going to take their climate commitments seriously into office. Right. I, I, I mean, again, I, I agree. I, what I find so interesting about this is there are a lot of days where I'm pessimistic and, and a lot of days where I, I mean, I'm working on a book about the end of the world and, and how we think about that and how we might forestall it. So I spend the days reading through the worst of the worst case scenarios. Sounds fun. It, well, yeah. I mean, I try to do it in the morning because I thought that's well, that would be wise since it's when I have the most energy, but I'm starting to think that that might not be the best strategy. <laughs> but uh, but what, one of the interesting things I found in trying to think about this internationally is we may not be moving quickly enough and we can certainly do better, but Relatively speaking to our history, it, there seems to be an emerging global consensus and emerging global acts, um, um, activity that's much faster than the vast majority of things we've ever tried to tackle together in the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, it used to take us much longer to try to build these regimes and coalitions. Uh, in, in some ways, I'm actually amazed mm -hmm. by the solidarity we've shown on this. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. I mean, I think... 
a clear some clear evidence for that is the fact that the Paris Agreement is the international treaty to have gone into effect the fastest of any other international treaty. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, it it is a historic, groundbreaking document. I think we get discouraged because things like the Paris Agreement or the Pan-Canadian Framework or whatever other climate plan you might point to from somewhere else in the world, even when they are groundbreaking, which both of those documents are, Paris Agreement, groundbreaking, international treaty, Pan-Canadian Framework, most comprehensive climate plan Canada's ever seen, and both of them are still totally insufficient. Yeah. So what do you do when you have to balance those two realities? What do you do when you know that the level of ambition being enshrined in these historic, groundbreaking documents is so far short of where we need to go. Well, that's it. So my, my greatest worry about the climate crisis is that we'll soon reach a point where the action required to prevent collapse will be so unpalatable that no one will willingly support it. That despite the fact that we're doing well on a number of fronts, despite the fact that we've actually accomplished a number of remarkable things, you get to a point where it's just no one will will possibly be open to accepting the the requirements to to address the the crisis. I mean, at what point do we reach that that impasse? Hmm. You think it's inevitable? Well, I I worry that it might be if we don't take mitigation very seriously very soon and uh, decide that we need to transform the way we live in small ways and big ways. I mean, I think of flight shame, for instance, as a moment where, okay, well, we need more of that. We need, we need more people who say, I'm not going to fly or I'm going to purchase carbon offsets. Mm-hmm. Or people who say, I'm not going to eat beef anymore mm-hmm. or not going to eat very much beef. Uh, we don't, people don't even want to do that yet. And we might be saying, well, it's going to take more than that. Yeah. So if we're in this situation where... We have some of the right places in some of the right pieces in place, but they're still falling so far short of the mark that we need to get to. And it seems like even those really insufficient things that we've got going on are landing in really uncomfortable ways with people who are ultimately going to decide whether they succeed or fail at the ground level in the communities. What does that tell us about? where we need to go if we're going to actually solve this problem. Um, for me, it, it tells me a couple of things. So one, I think there is there are historically really important lessons about tipping points that we need to pay attention to. Moments of transformation that have occurred without prediction and much faster than anyone could have anticipated. Um, and I know that this does some these kinds of shifts often get pointed to in climate conversations in a way that feels kind of facile. But it is important for us to keep that in mind. So if we think about renewable energy, five years ago, renewable energy was still something that felt expensive and impractical and like, yeah, we can do it, but we really have to put our minds to it and most people aren't going to be happy to put their a solar panel on their roof. And now we're in a place only five years later where unexpectedly, no one predicted it, renewable energy is cheaper than really many other forms of energy in many places around the world, including, critically, those places that are still industrializing and trying to provide millions of people with electricity, like India. 
they're finding that solar power is cheaper than coal power. And that's critical. So if, if we were to restart the energy system today in, in Canada or the United States, you, you're saying it wouldn't look like anything like this one. I mean, economically speaking, it would exactly. make sense. Yeah. Um, we, are, we have the problem of inertia because we have a bunch of existing infrastructure that's kind of predicated on the combustion of fossil fuels that we have to turn over. But in places like India where, you know, millions of their population are still without electricity, so they're still building that system out. Renewable energy is what they're building it on. They're still trying to build some coal plants, I'm not going to lie, but, you know, renewable energy is big. So there's there's one, tipping points. But the other piece of the puzzle, and I think a part of this last year for me has actually been like a series of often very inspiring realizations around the necessity to connect climate action with making people's lives better. With saying, hey, we are operating within an economic system that is not only destroying the planet by causing climate change and resulting in biodiversity loss, but we're also working in an economic system where many people are out of a job or employed precariously, are not able to make ends meet, where the top 1% are making so much astronomically more than the average worker. I mean, in Canada, top 100 CEOs make 195 times more than the average Canadian. By lunch on January 2nd, they've made more than the annual salary of most Canadians. When we're in that system of inequality, of course, it's going to be hard for people to find some of these climate solutions palatable, which is why we have to deal with them together. We have to deal with the challenges that people are facing in their everyday lives because of the systems of injustice and inequality that have been baked into the ways in which our societies and our economies run, while also addressing the ways in which those systems of injustices and inequality are the cause of climate change and other e environmental disasters. And that's what the Green New Deal is all about, really. So that implies that then the solutions are are as intersectional as the problem, though, right? That, that it is about, I mean, I, I, I agree. I worry about the collapse of democracy and one of the, I mean, and the rise of authoritarian populism. And I think one of the solutions to that is building a robust social democratic society, mm. uh, which will underwrite uh, political participation, political trust by ensuring some basic level of, of decency, subsistence, more than subsistence. Now, that's a different project, but interrelated. But you've called your your work an act of love, mm. which I quite like. Thinking about the climate crisis as a local and an international challenge, something that we need to be hopeful about but also need to act on, something that's intersectional, how do you adopt a disposition of of love if you're going to tackle climate um, if, if you're not day-to-day -day in this space? I mean, if you're at home listening or you're in a corporate boardroom or you're a civil servant listening or you're a politician listening and you want to reframe this in your head as an act of love, uh, and, and I, I suspect by relation an act of hope, what, what does that look like? Give us the how-to guide, <laughs> the Mary Kondo version. <laughs> How do we spark joy? How do we spark joy? Um, th so there's this cartoon that you've probably seen uh, that circulates every once in a while when we hear climate skeptics kind of deny the value of taking action on climate change. 
uh, and it is someone present making a presentation and on the PowerPoint screen behind them is like, we're going to build greener communities that are easier to get around. We're going to reduce air pollution by transitioning to active and public transportation. We're going to build more comfortable homes and we're going to create jobs doing all of this. And someone in the audience is raising their hand and asks, what if climate change is all a big hoax and we build a better world for nothing? <laughs> I That's really the place where I come at this from is understanding as a kid who grew up in poverty and you know didn't have a lot of of resources what i really depended on was the love of my family and the concern that they gave to me for myself my relationships to them and to others and and to the non-human world and the reason i do what i do is because i love people and i love this place that we share and I want to figure out how to make it better for us to all live in. And climate change is really standing in the way of that. So I'm going to do something about climate change. And so I kind of invite people into that framework of understanding that caring about the things that you care about at this point in human history means taking action on climate change because the people and the things that you care about are being impacted by climate change. It also means rejecting those forces that tear us apart from each other and pit us against one another in an effort to maintain the status quo. And I think that is one of the biggest uh, missing pieces of the conversation around climate change right now. The reason we often believe that climate change action is impossible is because we are told that climate change action is impossible or we're told that it's only possible if you do it all yourself and therefore it's impossible. We're told that this person over here who cares about climate change doesn't care about you or your job, so you're, they're your enemy and you, should be, uh, and you should be fighting. What do all of those points of tension do? Who do they benefit? They don't benefit us. They benefit the people who have a financial vested interest in the fossil fuel industry and in status quo politics that kowtow to fo the fossil fuel industry. And so I think keeping that in mind, understanding that when we're exposed to those narratives that are about disconnection, are about fear, are about uh, the impossibility of the task, that that is a calculated effort to take us away from the people that we care about and the relationships of love and trust that we exist within in our communities. And so reject that, resist it, and hold fast to the understanding that a part of being a human in this world that cares about other humans at this point in history means taking action on climate change. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to to end this episode. It's nice to end on a, on a message of hope <laughs> and a call to action. So my thank you to you, Catherine Rayu, for joining us for episode two, uh, to my producer, Mir Ahmed, and to everyone who is listening at home or on their way to work or in their office or somewhere out in the world trying to help us figure out the climate crisis. Thanks, everyone, and we will see you again soon. Bye.